we have been, well, we began last week um, a short series called The Promised One, in which we are delving into a number of the scriptures uh, given, written long before the arrival of Jesus Christ on earth. And they were written by the Hebrew uh, prophets about the coming of a Messiah, the coming of an anointed one, a king, a savior. Um, We began last week looking at one of the earliest prophetic clues about Jesus, which was in Genesis 3, and the, the, the word, the curse over the serpent who deceived Eve, and of a coming savior who would do battle with the serpent. And it says that the serpent would bruise his heel and he would bruise his head, that there'd be a battle in which one of them would ultimately lose. And we opened up how that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the serpent crusher. This week, I want to move us on to um, another passage in Deuteronomy 18, written by Moses, written by the great giver of the law, the one through whom the law came, at least. And uh, it is a very, very famous passage in uh, Jewish thought and Jewish theology. It's also had resonances with, in Islam as well, the, the expectation of a coming prophet. And of course, all of our faiths interpret this particular prediction differently. And I want to help you to see how the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what Moses was speaking about here. So I want to read to you from verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. It's Moses speaking. From among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. Moses is there speaking about the occasion when the Lord came to him on Mount Sinai and the people saw thunder and lightning and the trembling of the earth and they were very afraid and they were glad that God wasn't speaking directly to them but rather speaking through a prophet, through Moses who could be a kind of translator, an intermediary who could tra- who could convey God's word to them. And they said, we can't come closer. You need to tell us what God's saying. And Moses then continues, verse 17, the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And I'm particularly interested in these couple of verses in the middle, verse 18 and 19. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. I think that in thinking through life, the two most important questions that really define you are Who is God? And how certain of you are you of the answer to that question? How you answer that actually shapes everything about the way you live. C.S. Lewis famously 
said this. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Which is to say that because he had an understanding of who God is, he'd come to an understanding of who God is from his atheist background, he said suddenly all of life looks different on account of the risen sun. I see the world differently now. I see everything differently. And this is true of all of us. How you answer the question, who is God, and also the degree of certainty you have in how you answer it, is really the most important thing about you. Because it is the ultimate predictor of who you are and the way you live. You think about this, how... One of the words that we love to use these days is we we talk about narratives as a way of understanding our place in the world. We talk about the narrative that people paint in life. And I think it's a helpful word because the story that you understand about the world in which you live really does shape the way you think about your life. For example, if you think of the earth as a lump of cold rock which is spinning through space, and which ultimately is going to suffer a heat death at some undefined time in the future. If you think of that, then of course, it naturally follows that that life is fundamentally pointless. Whatever meaning you find in life is something you invent for yourself and you put into life, isn't it? The story that you understand about the universe and about your existence in it shapes the way you think about the meaning of your own life. You know, to take another extreme, you think about societies, you know, whether in Northern Europe or the Romans and the Greeks who believed in a plethora of, of warring gods, none of whom were perfect, none of whom were all-powerful, but who, sought, who, who kind of competed with one another in the world and did battle with each other. The story that they understood about the divine and, and spirituality actually had a profound impact upon their day-to-day lives. They saw themselves as the kind of playthings of the gods, who they had to appease somehow and desperately scramble through life in the hope of winning the favor of some deity. And of course, if that's true, whatever story you pay, I don't care whether you're a secularist, whether you believe in some other religion, whatever story you believe in is the most important thing about you and it determines so much about your decisions and your life and what you think is vital and what you think is important. And of course, this is true also for us as Christians. If we understand ourselves to be cherished creatures, made by a living God, designed for purpose, designed to know Him, loved, even called by name to be in His family, you can begin to understand how that changes your sense of yourself and your place in the world, doesn't it? So if the most important thing that we can know is who God is and It's vital to come to a certain conclusion about that. What's our greatest need then? It's not the need for air and water and food. Those things are, of course, essential for life, but they're equally essential to single-celled organisms. And a meaningful life is much bigger than just mere existence, isn't it? It's not even the need for entertainment and comfort and technology, even though I think a lot of people functionally live as though that was the purpose of life and the most fundamental things that we need. But that, you, know, you and I all agree that those things don't give us any sense of weightiness in life, any sense of meaning or purpose. A lot of people answer in different ways what our, what our deepest needs are. Maslow, a famous psych- psychologist, said that we had a hierarchy of needs. 
that begins with just our basic physiological needs and then safety and so on. It progressed to the peak, which he described as self-actualization. If any of you can define what that means for me, I'd be very interested to know. But Maslow did not go high enough. Because even beyond that, whatever that may be, I think there is a much more fundamental need of the human heart, which the Bible describes as the need to be fed and to be nurtured by the word of God himself. To know God through his self-revelation, through him speaking to us. This is why Jesus quoted the scripture that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And why Augustine famously said, you, speaking to God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless. You know, you could have everything that Maslow described, all the needs met, and still be restless. He says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Because at the bottom of your being is a basic need, which actually shapes everything else about your life, which is the need to know who God is through his word. And have your whole mind, heart, and life shaped by it. And that brings us to this this prophecy about a coming prophet. A prophecy which says that someone was going to come who would speak the word of God to us in a way that cannot be confused. It brings us then to this idea. And... I think it's hard for us always when we're thinking about the, the prophecies about the coming of Jesus in the, in the Hebrew scriptures before he came. It's hard for us to fully appreciate the expectation that was birthed in people's hearts who read them and, and understood them and heard them before the coming of Christ. And it's as difficult as it is for us, you know, when you don't know something, the sense of expectation, anticipation, even if, if it's something, you know, as simple as the the results from a recent football match or something like that, all of that sense of weight and expectation, anticipation is dissolved the minute you know, isn't it? It's why I get incredibly angry when people tell me the, the end of films. It makes me so furious because I, I love, I relish the sense of not knowing, the sense of expectation, the sense of, you know, the tension of, of discovery. I was mad when... Um, I'm sure you all know by now, because I'm about to give you a spoiler, but you know the film The Sixth Sense, which came out, I think, in the 90s, so it's way old. But um, in the film, of course, it turns out Bruce Willis is a ghost at the end. There it is. And, uh, but shortly after it came out, everyone was going on about how M. Night Shalaman's, however you say his name, can I say that properly? Shalaman Shamelian, I don't know his name. The director uh, had made this film that had this great sense of expectation and tension and unresolved plot until the very end when you discover this. And, I was watching the comedian Jack D, who in his very sardonic way just gave it away. I thought that was hilarious. I was livid. I wanted to punch the TV screen. <laughs> I hadn't seen this film. And of course, you know, this is the way the heart works. The, the, when we don't know something, the sense of intrigue, the sense of interest is, is powerful. And then as soon as you do, maybe the interest dissipates. And of course, living this side of the cross is very important for us. And this side of the arrival of Jesus Christ, it's important for us to try and step back into the the mindset of one anticipating the coming of someone who they had not seen yet or who they did not know what he would look like yet and and rekindle something of the sense of the weightiness of, of how powerful and potent it is to have these prophecies describing what he would do and what, what he would fulfill for us even before he's arrived. And I, I want to help you to see it through that lens if possible this morning. And the way I think that we need to approach, it, approach that 
is to, to explore this, this sense of need. What is it that we need? I've already said to you we need the Word of God, but let's, let's break that down a little bit more. What is it that you needed that, that made it necessary that God would send Jesus for us? And I want to give you a few answers. Here's the first one. You need, you need a clear message from God. You need a clear message from God, which is to say, put it another way, you need someone who speaks your language to make the knowledge about God plain to you. Now, let me just open up what I think I mean by that. When you ask the question, in what way was Jesus like Moses who had come before him? They were separated by about 1,800 years. And in between them were many, many, many prophets. But none of them fulfilled this, that there would be a prophet like Moses, or something that these two had in common, which bound them together, which meant that Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of what is being described here. What, it, what was it? And I think possibly one of the more obvious answers would be, well, both of them tower above scriptural history, and indeed the history of the world, as incomparable figures who've actually shaped the way we understand life and impacted unbelievable numbers of people. If it were not for Moses, you know, there would be no Pentateuch, which is probably one of the most foundational documents of Western society. It shaped our lives in ways we cannot fully understand. And he stands as one great mountain on the mountain range, and then the other great mountain, the great peak, is Jesus, whose words and teachings have impacted us enormously. And these two guys have so much in common that the other prophets are not like them. Both of them were saviors and deliverers. Moses uh, was a savior from, from Egypt. Jesus is a savior of all those who belong to his people, the church. Both of them spoke face to face with God, had unparalleled sense of revelation. Both of them um, were kind of rulers of, of, of the people. Moses operated like a king. Jesus says he is a king. Both of them are like priests. Moses uh, gave, in, instituted the sacrificial system. Jesus himself is our high priest, the New Testament tells us. Both of them were kind of covenant heads. And I don't want to get too complex. It's a lot to explain what that means. But there are two great covenants in the Bible. The Old Testament, the New Testament, Moses, Jesus. These two men, they tower over history in this way. And it's, it, that's certainly one way you can approach it. But I, actually, I don't think that's the most important thing we could say. When God says to Moses here, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, he then adds, from among their brothers. I think the most important thing you could say about Jesus and Moses is that they were profoundly accessible. This is something that um, God says about Moses a little bit earlier on. When Moses was, was kind of the leader of his people. And his own brother, Aaron, and his sister, Miriam, challenged him at one stage and said, well, look, God can speak to any one of us. Why do we have to listen to you? And of course, family feuds are the worst. They're the most rancor, don't they? And he, his own brother and sister are undermining him before the people. And God weighs in and speaks to them. And this is what God says. He says, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. So he's saying, I speak to all kinds of people. I speak, there are lots of prophets. I, I make myself known in visions, he says. I speak with him in a dream. 
Not so with my servant Moses. You think, what? So you speak to all kinds of prophets. You give them visions and dreams. What's different about Moses? And God says this. He says, he's faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth. Clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. You see, if you've read your Bible, you'll know exactly what this means. When I've followed Bible reading plans, working from the beginning to the end, and reading all the books of the Bible, the books of Moses are clear. They're not that confusing. You, want, you hear the word of God clearly, and then you, you get to the prophets, and you feel like you're wading through, 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 through mud at times. You can't see clearly. You don't understand what it's going on about. And it's the riddles and the visions and the dreams and the mysterious ways that God speaks. And that the difference is vast. And you finally get through all of the confusion and the smoke and the, and the difficulty and the challenge. And of course, they reward study, but you have to put the work in to know what these, these guys are talking about. You finally get to them, and then you, you arrive in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you're reading the words of Jesus. And suddenly, it's like, oh, I can see again. And this stuff makes sense to me again. And you see how... The way Jesus and Moses speak, there's so much clarity, so much accessibility. God had his reasons for speaking in riddles to the other prophets, but he allows Moses and Jesus to speak to us with unparalleled clarity. And I suppose you can think of it like this, that these two men were able to take the word of God and make it clear to us in language we understand. They speak our tongue. They speak human. And I think that's what, the weight of what God is saying here to Moses, saying, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you from among their brothers, somebody very ordinary in the sense. Why is that important? Sometimes God doesn't make himself perfectly clear to us. Sometimes we have a lot of misinterpretation and confusion over what God has said. It's a little bit like, Confusion over whether the dress was white and gold or black and blue or whatever colors it was. It's clearly blue and gold, but no one seems to agree with me on that. But when God speaks to us through Jesus, he graciously, the word that the the theologians use is he accommodates to our language. He makes himself known in human language. That's a huge theological problem. How can you say about God that he is awesome and for the word awesome to in any way capture the true awesomeness of God. Our language is so limited, isn't it? But God does graciously stoop and make himself known in the words that you and I use. And never more so, with, never, with more clarity than when he spoke to us through his son, Jesus. See how he perfectly fulfills this. A man like you, Moses, from among your brothers. And here we have Jesus born to a very working class family in Bethlehem. Growing up, wielding a hammer and a saw and building houses and walls and all these kinds of things. A builder. And so all of his teaching comes from his experience of just ordinary life. He doesn't speak on the level so high that people don't understand. He talks about flowers and about seeds and soils. And he makes the word of God plain to us in ways that All of us, even those of us who have nothing to do with farming, actually do understand. He speaks plainly to us. And I think this is what is being sort of hinted at 
when in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, for example, it says this, that long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Loads of prophets, he says. Many times, many ways. God was speaking all the time through different people. But he says in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And he goes on to describe the son. And I think it's a bit like this. It's like, you ever done one of those thousand-piece jigsaw puzzles? And when you scatter the pieces on the table, you cannot make any sense of the thing. And this is like all the various words that came through all the numerous prophets at many times in many ways. And then you pick up the lid, and you see the picture as it's supposed to be. And this is God's word to us through Jesus. It is perfectly clear. You probably know the story of the Rosetta Stone. It was found in... in, um, 1799, and prior to that, archaeologists had been digging around in Egypt and had found grave tombs, and they found hieroglyphs everywhere. And you probably all studied a little bit of Egyptian hieroglyphics in school, right? You could drew a couple of them. But no one knew what any of them meant. They were just pictures. No one had a clue how to interpret the stories and the laws and that were written on walls. Until someone stumbled across this great piece of stone which they named the Rosetta Stone. And on it, it was made in 196 BC, so a couple hundred years before Jesus. And on it, it had three versions of the same passage in three different texts. They had Egyptian hieroglyphs. It had something, let me get this right, called the Demotic Script. And then at the bottom, it had, it had Greek, which all the classical scholars knew. And they were able to make connections between the hieroglyphs and the Greek, and so able to have the key, the kind of interpretive key to understand Egyptian hieroglyphics, through which a whole world of scholarship was opened up. Suddenly they could walk into the tombs and read what was said millennia previously by a culture that had long since passed away. And it's an extraordinary thing to have the key to knowledge suddenly burst open and unlocked. And I think in many ways Jesus is the Rosetta Stone. God spoke in all kinds of ways. He made himself clear to some degree, or at least he's made aspects of his nature plain to us through, through the world he created and has spoke through the scriptures. But no one could quite piece the whole thing together clearly until Jesus himself arrived. I was a couple of times had the privilege of serving on jury duty. And uh, both of those times in the deliberations after we'd after we'd heard all the evidence uh, for and against, we'd, we sat in, in deliberations, and um, I ended up being the foreman uh, of, the ju- of the jury. So there's 12 people, and you have to have a foreman, and the foreman has to kind of marshal the discussion. And it was, it's a challenging thing. But on both of the occasions, the one thing that ha- was in common with both of my experiences was that there was a great deal of confusion in the accounts that we, were, we heard, the various witnesses. One of them was a drugs case, the other one was a a situation of violence that had happened in South London. But in both occasions, it was video footage that brought clarity and actually weighed heaviest with the jury's decisions. Because suddenly the various testimonies and words and confusion were were made clear to us through video footage that we thought, well, really, you can't argue with what you've seen. And, And this is what Jesus is to us. All kinds of people through history speculated about who God is. Prophets, some of them real, some of them fake, have written all kinds of things. And then Jesus steps in and brings clarity to the situation. You need a clear word from God 
This is a huge challenge to you, by the way, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't considered. You have to look at Jesus Christ. I'll get back to that later. Here's the second thing you need. You need not only a clear word from God, you need a full and unfiltered word or message from God. What I mean is that it's not enough for it to be clear if it's also just a tiny bit of knowledge. We need more than that. God is incalculably great. We need to have a full, full disclosure of who God is, or at least enough, right? And this is one way in which Moses stood out. Moses spoke an enormous amount about who God is. But even that was inadequate. And this is what God is saying here through Moses when he says in in verse 18, he says, I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. There's a promise of a kind of someone who bring a fullness to our knowledge of who God is. And what makes Jesus so uniquely able to speak to us from God in this way? It's not that he merely spoke God's revelation. It's more than just his words. And this is what the answer is. It's, it's that Jesus himself embodied the revelation of who God is. He didn't just bring words from God. He himself was God, stepped in in human flesh on the scene of history. There could not be a more full revelation of God than that which was shown to us through the person, Jesus Christ. It's a little bit like, you know, I I speak a a small amount of Cantonese, you know. Don't know if you knew that. Um, Some of you know what I just said. Eugene has no idea, because unfortunately, (laughs) Eugene... Eugene is a Singaporean and grew up speaking English. But my wife grew up bilingual. And, uh, you know, as a result, straddles two cultures, two ways of speaking. In a sense, this is what we're talking about here. It's not just that Jesus speaks human. He also speaks divine. And he straddles these, these two worlds, these two th- ways of thinking, these two ways of speaking And his one person brings them together. And this is not what anyone expected when Moses said, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you from among your brothers. But this is how God chose to fulfill it in the best way possible. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the film The Fifth Element. Again with Bruce Willis. We're on a Bruce Willis theme today, aren't we? (laughs) Um, Every 5,000 years, the world comes under a threat in which it's going to be destroyed. And the only way the world can be saved is by the uniting of these five elements. Four of them are stones that represent earth, fire, air, and water. What is the fifth element? The fifth element is a person. Lilu, her name is. It's a weird film. I don't recommend it. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) Jesus is, is like that. It's not just that, you know, all kinds of prophets who could speak what God said. But he was unique because he didn't just speak, he embodied the revelation of who God is. That's what he's saying to us in John 14. Just after he says that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Very strong words. No one can ever accuse Jesus of of, uh, speaking in a mild-mannered, cautious way. He was very direct. He says the only way you can know God is through me. And Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father. This is one of his disciples, and he doesn't get it yet. And how does Jesus answer? He says, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He's saying, to know God, you just have to know me. Why is that so significant for us? Why should we pay full attention? Because I think there's something so much more significant about embodied communication. You think about this, I'm sure some of you have, have tried to find a partner, I know one or two of you have married by meeting someone online, right? And dating online, this is really after my time we met, before this became popular, so I've not any experience in this, but I, I kind of conjecture, if I'm wrong you can tell me later, but I imagine, I imagine at least, that what happens is you begin to communicate, and you think, I, you know, I like, I like what I, I'm learning. But it's, it's through the filter of, of the limitation of just words, isn't it? Until, until you arrange a time to meet. And there, there are things you can only know about a person when you see them face to face, aren't there? Things that you can only understand about them through all the hidden communication of body language and, and, uh, and, and the way motives show in the flicker of an expression and all these kinds of things. You deepen your knowledge of someone when you, when you communicate face-to-face in an embodied way. It's one of the reasons, just as a little side jab, why we don't believe in online church. We believe in an embodied experience of being a family. It's, it's absolutely irreplaceable. And it's not just that you get a deeper knowledge. You also get a more confident, certain knowledge. Because, you know, just because you've seen a picture online doesn't necessarily follow that they look like that, does it? You don't really know a person until you're with them face-to-face and you have embodied communication. It gives you much more confidence that I know who this person is, I know what they look like, I know way more about them. And this is the weight of what it means that God stepped into human history in the person of Jesus Christ, not just to throw a word to us from heaven via a prophet, but that a prophet would be a from among us who embodied the revelation. It was God himself. It is impossible for me to overstate how huge this, this, this is and the significance of it. It is impossible. One of his own disciples, one of Christ's own disciples, John, reflecting many years later and teaching about Jesus, he still could not get over this reality. This is why he opens one of his letters. He says, that which was from the beginning, he's talking about God, about the divine. He says, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. In other words, it was revealed, it was shown. And we've seen it. And we testify to it. We tell you. He's saying there is no... you know, he could never get over the fact that God had revealed himself to, to them in a person who they could see, hear, and touch and know what God was like because they'd seen Jesus. You need not just a clear word, you need a full and unfiltered word. And here's the last, last thing I want to say. You need to respond. When something as big as this has happened, You could either live your life in ignorance or denial, or you can live in the light of the reality of it. 
Some of you may have heard of a man called Hiru Onoda. He was a soldier in the Second World War, a Japanese soldier who had been stationed in the Philippines. And when the war came to an end in 1946 and Japan had surrendered, Hiru Onoda did not get the memo. And he was hiding in the jungle, living and surviving off the land in the Philippines for 30 years almost. It was 1974 until he finally emerged from the jungle, a lone soldier. And you admire him for his persistence, don't you? And his dogged determination never to give in. But you also pity him, right? Because you think, what a waste of a life, wandering around on your own, fighting a war that no one else is fighting, that long since has come to an end. And then for it all to end in disappointment as well and find out that you were on the losing side. It must have been absolutely heartbreaking and tragic for him to realize that he'd basically wasted his life. And, you know, when you think about the monumental reality of the God who's shown us, shown us himself in the person of Jesus Christ through the arrival of the great prophet, the last prophet, the one great prophet, Jesus, how tragic that you could then get on with your life as though nothing's happened as though God hasn't told us who he is, as though he hasn't shown us in the plainest way possible his character and heart and his desire for us. I'm calling you, friends, regardless of where you're coming from, whether you're Christian, not Christian, exploring, whatever whatever stance you have, the call is to pay attention. You think about this positively, you've got to understand the privilege of the fact that God has spoken to us through Jesus. I think we have a human tendency to quickly undervalue our privileges and the wonderful things that have happened in life. You know, two of the most precious people in the world to me would be dead if it were not for the NHS. My dad would have died in 1989, and my wife would have died in 2013, shortly after giving birth to my son. And do I fully appreciate the fact that they are with me now, thanks to modern medicine and the health system, probably not, right? I probably don't wake up every morning full of gratitude and rejoicing in that reality. I should do. We have this human tendency to ignore our privileges and always focus on what's missing in life, don't we? But friends, what I'm trying to encourage you to do is not miss this. God has spoken and he's come to us in the man Jesus Christ, the God-man. Peter kind of tries to underline what an incredible privilege this is. He says, he talks about the prophets who long ago were searching out these things. It's like they're eagerly desperate trying to find out more about the coming Savior who had one day arrived. It's like their obsession and their passion. And he talks about angels longing to look into these things. And then he talks about us. We just know it all. We have all all the information. We've got the Bible. We've got the New Testament. We've got the eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ having come. There's also a a kind of a warning that comes through in Deuteronomy 18 through our passage here. When God says, in verse 19, he says, Whoever will not listen to my words, that he, this prophet Jesus, shall speak in my name, He says, I myself will require it of him. It's a Hebraism, a Hebrew way of speaking. It's a kind of a warning. It's saying it's very dangerous to ignore 
the fact that God has spoken. And so I want to give you a few brief encouragements as I close. Encouragements to pay attention to Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I want to challenge you to look at him and listen to him. It's possible that you haven't done so because of some prejudice that you've inherited second or third hand from other people who told you that Jesus isn't who he said he is. The challenge is whether you have confronted him or not yourself. I think one of the things we're often guilty of is something that C.S. Lewis described as chronological snobbery, where he says that modern people have this peculiar idea that all the good stuff is the modern stuff, and the ancients had no clue. And it's true, we, we apply it across the board, we apply it to science and technology, where maybe there is more truth to it, even though there are things the ancients accomplished which we can't even to this day explain. But, but why would it be true in the area of spirituality and of the meaning of life and these kinds of things? Are we any closer to knowing the answers to those questions through just being moderns? I don't think so. And C.S. Lewis says, let's not be guilty of chronological snobbery. Don't think that just because Jesus came 2,000 years ago that it's not relevant to you today. That would be an unforgivable, prejudicial conclusion to come to. And just a last challenge on this point. Please, please do not let yourself remain ignorant purely because of laziness. I don't think there's anything more sad to me to compare the weight of the reality of Jesus and the impact he's had on individuals and on the course of history compared to the scant and bare effort that people put into learning anything about him. You think, well, how, how is that even possible? And often it comes down to nothing more than our, our human laziness. We, we don't want to put in the effort. We don't want to put in the work. And so, a friend, I want to challenge you, if you haven't already done so, if, you, if there's more that you could explore and discover about him, do it. But also, this, this is relevant to us as Christians. The challenge for a Christian is to live their whole life in the reality of who Jesus is and what he's spoken. That's what he calls for. And that's what it means to be a disciple. What is a disciple? A disciple is someone who eagerly listens to the words of the master to the degree where they try and learn them by heart. That's what disciples did in the first century. They sat at the feet of their master and they tried to learn by heart the things that they said. How else, by the way, Did the disciples write down the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels? A decade or two later, they had learned these things by heart and they had rehearsed them through their teaching, constantly teaching others verbally and orally. A disciple knows the teaching of the Master. That's one thing. The next thing is that they then seek to embody and imitate what the Master has taught. The purpose of a disciple was not merely to get head knowledge. It was to be transformed to become more like the person that they followed. And friend, this is your calling as a Christian. Christ has called you to be his follower, not to continue the way that you have been going or to be the person you have been before, but rather to be changed, to become more and more like him. Praise God that he gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit who empowers us to become more like Jesus. But nothing happens if you don't listen to him to begin with. 
Nothing happens if you don't pay attention. I think ultimately, though, our calling as Christians is simply to, to marvel and to say thank you. Jesus asks Peter and the disciples. On one occasion when thousands of people had walked away from him and rejected him, he asked them, do you want to go away as well? And Peter says these penetrating and insightful words. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? It's a question. He's saying we could search all over the world and we wouldn't find anyone like you. To whom shall we go? And yet we do open our ears to all kinds of voices and influences and priorities that come from people other than Christ. And he says, to whom shall we go? He says, you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That is the posture of a Christian. That is the posture of a disciple who longs to know Christ, longs to discover the depths of what it means to know him. As Paul said, I make it my aim to know him. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came and in your life you displayed the Father so that to know you is to know God. But I thank you for the great triumph, the ultimate display of the Father's love and kindness towards us when you went to the cross. That when you took our sins upon yourself, we could never doubt the love of God. That you were willing to take what was ours, the punishment we deserved, in order that you could lavish grace upon us and kindness upon us and your welcome upon us. And I pray, Lord, that as Christians, our passion and desire would be to know you better, to fully appreciate the reality of your coming, and not to live life with priorities determined by all kinds of other things, but to have single-minded focus upon you, that you're the great peak who stands over history, that you're the sun who illuminates all of life. Nothing makes sense without you. Everything begins to make sense in the light of your presence. And Lord Jesus, I pray that through knowing you, you begin to clear up confusion. Clear up confusion of how we can deal with our sin. Of how we can approach our suffering. Clear up the confusion of the meaning of life and of what we're meant to do with our time and energy and talents. Call us back to surrender and submission to you because you alone are worthy. Amen. Amen.